Welcome to the Sick to Death podcast, a history of medicine in 10 objects, which are on display at our brand new medical museum in the heart of historic Chester. Sick to Death is supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, buckle yourselves in. This is going to be a gory ride. Where there is war, disease and injury are never far away. In this episode, we arrive at the 20th century to look at the way in which the two world wars shaped medicine and spread disease. Fought between 1914 and 1918, the First World War saw the deployment of 70 million military personnel. It broke out at a time when European colonial powers had reached their height and mobilized subjects from across the globe an endeavour that would have enormous social and political consequences. Famously called the war to end all wars, unresolved tensions and human rights atrocities saw global war break out again in 1939. The Second World War became the deadliest war in human history, with between 70 and 85 million civilian and military fatalities. As well as armed conflict, there were genocides, massacres, widespread disease and starvation. There is a lot to cover, so let's find out what our Sick to Death object is today. Dean Patton, the head honcho at Sick to Death. We're travelling into the 20th century now, we're getting closer to the present. What do you have for us? We have an amazing survival, really, which is a pristine, unopened, not one item used, ARP Warden's medical kit, first aid kit. So this was donated to us from our sister site, Western Approaches in Liverpool. And it was a medical kit used during the Blitz. Obviously, Liverpool, where it came from, was the second most bombed city in the UK outside of London. And this is a full kit that would have been used for treating people that were caught up in the Blitz. So there's obviously things connected to burns. There's some liquids that were designed to offset the effects of gas. Now, there was always a fear that after the First World War, when mustard gas and, and phosphine gas was used in the trenches, that the, the Nazis would kind of use this technology on, on civilians in the Blitz. So everyone was prepared for this. It never actually happened, but uh, this kit contains some ointments and salves, etc., to kind of offset any issues with gas poisoning or maybe to alleviate the pain from it. By World War II, many tough lessons had been learned. Those signing up for the Royal Army Medical Corp, or the RAMC, in 1914 would have encountered an entirely different world of warfare. Well, on, on the outbreak of the First World War, the main provision of medical care was the Royal Army Medical Corps. That's Paul Reed, military historian, author and presenter of Old Frontline podcast. And it was a, a relatively new part of the army. It had only been formed in 1898 from the medical services. And its first war, which was the Boer War, the most recent war in, in the British popular mind, was something that had not gone exactly well for the medical services. And they'd learned an awful lot of lessons for it. So when the British Army went to war in 1914... It went with the RAMC, the Royal Army Medical Corps, equipped with field ambulances to treat the wounded. And their job in what was predicted to be a mobile war was to have rapid moving medical units that could catch up with where the fighting was and treat men in situ and then get them off the field of battle to an improvised hospital somewhere close by. Each infantry battalion also had a medical officer, a regimental medical officer, an RMO, 
and he was there with sometimes a few men from the medical corps, but he also had battalion stretcher bearers where he'd pick some of the more intelligent men within that unit who could think for themselves and he'd train them up in basic sort of first aid. Now, this is not something that we'd compare to the medical corps today, but it was an early phase of its history. And compared to other European armies, actually ours was quite well thought out and quite well advanced. It was ready for a war, just not the war that was about to happen. It's easy to forget that when the First World War broke out, cavalry with swords was still a major part of operations. In the air, soldiers would have seen zeppelins rather than planes. There were no tanks, airplanes had only just been invented, and helicopters were still years away. Over the course of four tough years, warfare changed considerably. Well, once the war became static, actually from a medical point of view, it became easier to treat men because if the fight is always moving on, you've always got to keep sending your medical units forward to wherever that battle is taking place. Once the Western Front was formed in the winter of 1914-15 and there was this static line of trenches over 450 miles from the Belgian coast to the Swiss border, the British sector running from Flanders down towards the Somme, it was much easier for, for medical units to operate. So if you look at a typical example of a soldier being wounded, what would happen to him? Would he be picked up on the battlefields, whether that was during an attack or in a static period of trench warfare, by those battalion stretcher bearers, so not trained medics, essentially first aid men, who were trained to clean his wounds, dress his wounds, hand him over to the regimental medical officer who would assess him and decide whether he'd survive the journey to the nearest medical facility or not, give him pain relief with morphine, and this was normally morphine tablets because morphine capsules existed, but in bombardments of the First World War, just the shock of bombardments could break or shatter them and you've lost your morphine. So morphine would come up in little capsules that would be placed under the tongue and they would write with an indelible pencil, one dose would be an M written on the forehead of the soldier to indicate that he'd had a dose of morphine. So if he got down the line and his medical card, which they filled in with his details on what treatment he'd received, had come loose or got lost, at least they knew that he had a dose of morphine. So that would happen on the battlefield. The stretcher bearers would then take that casualty to a point where he'd be handed over to a dressing station. So this would be an advanced dressing station, perhaps in a farm or a specially built bunker close to the battlefield. There you'd have a field ambulance of the Royal Army Medical Corps who would redress and clean his wounds, reassess him for treatment, again look at his survivability for the next stage of the journey and then load him up into an ambulance, whether that was a horse-drawn ambulance or a motorised ambulance, and he'd be taken by road to the nearest casualty clearing station, CCS, which was the first proper medical unit that he'd be admitted to. These covered about a square mile of ground. That's where the nurses were. That's where trained surgeons would be. There was operating theatres there, x-ray facilities and so on. And he would be stabilised, treated, and then once he was ready to be moved for further treatment, if that was required, he would be taken off to the next stage of medical facilities, which would be somewhere on the, on the French coast in a base hospital. So often a big hotel taken over or some existing hospital theatres, or as the war went on, they'd build them. So uh, he'd be treated there. And if, and if it required convalescence or something like that, he'd often be then moved back to Britain, back to Blighty, and he'd have further treatment there. Many soldiers had wounds that were treatable within the theatre of war. 
so within France or Flanders, so they could then be sent back to their units. And not every soldier went home. The much prized wound, if that's the right word for it, was the blighty one. A blighty one was a wound serious enough to get you back home to Britain. And and once you'd recovered from that, you were given convalescence leave, which meant you could go home and see your family, which was a big, obviously, bonus to soldiers. The First World War saw a number of innovations. Although ABO blood grouping was discovered in 1900 by Karl Landsteiner, it would be several years before its significance in transfusion was appreciated by most physicians. In addition, the actual process of transfusion was delicate and long. It wasn't until the arrival of US physicians in the theatre of war in 1917 that the process was speeding up with greater efficiency. Another innovation was the widespread use of X-rays, discovered in 1895, during war to detect where bullets had entered the body. During World War I, Marie Curie put her research into radium to one side and invented a mobile X-ray unit which could get close to battlefields to support the medical effort. Well, because of this static nature of the First World War and the fact that the medical units operated in this sort of linear way, it led to lots of different innovations as the war went on. And one tiny little thing that very few people have ever heard of is the Thomas splint. That's not in your top 10 list of medical uh, bits of kit that you think of the First World War. But when men went over the top, they clambered up out of a trench and they advanced into open ground, firing at them was Germans with machine guns or rifle fire, and those bullets were coming at them at just above ankle level and just below their knees. So most impact wounds from gunshot wounds were in that area between the knee and the ankle, and it often shattered the bone, completely shattered it, broke it in two. Now, stretcher bearers would drag these casualties onto stretchers to get them away, understandably, and what would happen is the broken bones would work against each other tearing away at tissue and muscle and the mud of the battlefield would get in there and it would massively increase the risk of bacteria and therefore the chance of succumbing to your wounds as a consequence of this. What the Thomas splint did, it was basically like a big sock with a little wire frame and as soon as somebody got shot through the legs, you put this over their legs, it kept the legs straight, it stopped the bones from moving against each other and tearing away all that tissue and muscle and and everything else. It protected the wound from infection, so from outside bacteria getting in there and it reduced the death rate from these wounds from something like nearly 80% to 20%. So it was a a massive, massive lifesaver that saved huge numbers of British Tommies' lives in the First World War. Something hardly recognised today, but just something like that had a massive impact on the battlefield itself. In the last episode, we heard about Florence Nightingale's role in professionalising nursing. In fact, women had been involved in the care of the battle injured for centuries, from medieval nuns in England to Mary Seacole in the Crimea. Their importance in World War I cannot be overstated. The nurses' role in the First World War was not on the actual battlefield itself. If you look at the way that soldiers were evacuated from the forward zone by stretcher bearers to an advanced dressing station, the first time they would encounter nurses would be at a casualty clearing station. And there were a couple of reasons for this, is that the army was very, very, the war office was very reluctant to put women into the line of fire. They were fearful of fatal casualties and the effect that that would have on morale and the effect that that would have on more women volunteering to to take up this task. 
And in the First World War, there were really two key types of nurses. There were the, the women who joined the Queen Alexander's Imperial Military Nursing Service. They were the QAs. They were professional nurses. So they'd worked often in hospitals before the war. They were professionally qualified as nurses. Uh, there was about 10,000 of them in the First World War, and they operated alongside male medics in a nursing capacity and the nearest they got to the battlefield was about eight to ten miles depending where one of these casualty clearing stations was located and that didn't stop them from getting killed actually today is the anniversary of the death of Nellie Spindler who was a nurse from Wakefield in Yorkshire who was killed when her casualty clearing station came under fire during the third battle of the battle of Passchendaele in 1917 so some did die These nurses were then supplemented by the VADs, not volunteer ambulance drivers, which some people think that stands for. It's the Voluntary Aid Detachment. There were about 38,000 of them and included famous people like Vera Britton, who wrote Testament of Youth, and Agatha Christie was a VAD as well. And essentially, they were first aiders who were there to assist the professional nurses in their tasks. So there was this sort of two-tiered approach to nursing in the First World War, professionals and often a little bit looked down on, but providing an absolutely essential role, the VADs who worked at the same casualty clearing stations and base hospitals behind the lines. After the war, those with long-term psychological or physical injuries were often left without appropriate care. Once soldiers have left the army, the experience that they they have in terms of treatment and follow-up treatment both a hundred and something years ago and today, is often not good. For men themselves, once they'd recovered from a wound, and particularly if it was a traumatic wound that had resulted in the loss of a limb, then replacement limbs were found for them. If it was uh, they'd lost one or more eyes, then they, they, were, they were given glass eyes. Some of the veterans I interviewed in the 1980s had had really terrible facial injuries, and they'd been lucky to encounter some of the early plastic surgeons who'd helped rebuild their faces. And one veteran had a China face mask that he'd been given to wear to hide the uh, terrible wounds he'd received to his face on the Somme in, in 1916. And when I went to see him, he kept this thing in a drawer at the back of his house. He just he couldn't look at it anymore. And, and he, after seven or eight decades since, uh, since his wound, the scars had healed to a degree, but you, you could still see where this terrible injury had taken place. Really, most of the support was a network of charities like Comrades of the Great War and eventually the British Legion or there were some organisations that assisted them so Blessmer that exists today which is the Limbless Ex-Servicemen's Association that began its history in the post-World War I period and St Dunstan's as it was called then which was a hospital for the blind for men blinded in the war and is now called Blind Veterans is another organisation that helped men with those types of wounds but it was very very hit and miss and of course for those that had psychological injuries from the war there was almost no post-war assistance for that except talking again talking amongst their mates during the war there was I mean it's, it's a myth that we did not recognize shell shock it's just depends on who you were and where you were as to how you were treated if you were lucky like Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon you went to Craig Lockhart and you met Major Rivers who believed that getting men to talk through their experiences would be a good way of treatment. If you were unlucky, you might find that no one really believed you and thought you were a malingerer. So the experience of that was very, very uh, desperate, really, for, for the men involved. And in the post-war world, almost non-existent. 
World War I had a deadly sting in its tail when a mysterious pandemic of influenza swept around the world. Known to history as Spanish flu, it's thought that the outbreak claimed anywhere between 17 and 100 million lives and hit in several waves between 1918 and 1919. Despite its name, its origin is still debated. Meanwhile, an old disease made a devastating reappearance. The late 19th and early 20th century saw the return of plague. Of the multiple pandemics of bubonic plague, the third plague pandemic is probably the least well-known popularly. That's Dr. Jacob Steer-Williams, medical historian and author of The Filth Disease and the forthcoming Carbolic Colonialism. Although I think that's really curious because first, it's been the most impactful pandemic on global public health today. And secondly, because the third plague pandemic is one of the most thoroughly recorded pandemics in modern history. The archives are literally full of third plague pandemic materials, documents, artifacts, photographs. A couple years ago, I was in Cape Town, South Africa, researching for my current book project, and I found hundreds of unopened boxes on the third plague pandemic in South Africa. And opening one of these boxes, I found a large overstuffed bag full of rags, different colored rags and different materials. And then it was followed in another box by a handwritten report. And it was by a British bacteriologist around 1900 who had deliberately inoculated different types of common material with live virulent cultures of Yersinia pestis, the causative organism of plague. And then he had tested, once he had inoculated these materials, the various in vogue disinfectants of the time. And it was this like really amazing eye-opening archival find. And I'll lie to you if I didn't shudder a bit reading the report only after I had handled the 100-year-old plague-soaked rags. So the third plague pandemic historical epidemiologists and, and scholars tell us originated in the Yunnan region of southwest China in the 1850s, and then it spread west over land until it reached the critical British-held port of Hong Kong in 1894. And it was there that Japanese bacteriologist Shibasporo Kitasato and the Swiss-born Pasteurian bacteriologist Alexander Yersin independently identified the bacterium of Yersinia pestis. And then it was through an enormous eruption of plague in Hong Kong in 1894 that through trade, through shipping networks, through warfare, and here British steamships were key, that bubonic plague erupted throughout the world from continent to continent. It struck Bombay, Singapore, Buenos Aires, Egypt, Rio, Honolulu, San Francisco, Sydney, Cape Town, and, and again, all over the world. It was a pandemic. And the dates for the third pandemic spreading in that way usually run from the 1890s until about the 1950s, where historical epidemiologists say cases from the third plague pandemic from genomic sequencing sort of died away. The death toll from the third plague pandemic was huge. Yeah, so historians and historical demographers cite anywhere from 12 million to 15 million recorded deaths from the third plague pandemic. So from the 1890s until the 1950s for worldwide global deaths. Now, the deaths we know from the recorded archival data that we have 
from the biological data that we have from, from sequencing, that the deaths from the third plague pandemic were staggeringly high in India and in China. But the mortality records that we have from the first half of the 20th century when the third plague pandemic was spreading, they do present some problems. So one is that we know that there was no robust international system of disease surveillance when the third plague pandemic started in the late 19th century and when it ended shortly after World War II. So those numbers, 12 million to 15 million, are almost certainly underrepresentative. The closest forerunner of a kind of pre-WHO of that period was this European-centric group called the International Sanitary Conferences, which started you know, in the 19th century in an approach to deal with maritime trade and quarantine and dealing with yellow fever and cholera. And after plague cases were observed, actually in London in 1896, European authorities convened another one of these international conferences in Venice in 1897. But again, that group was a very Eurocentric kind of organization. There was a second uh, group that got together in 1911. It was an international plague conference in Shenyang that was in response to the Manchurian pneumonic plague outbreak, which killed more than 60,000 people. And that represented a little more, even in the early 20th century, of an international approach to dealing with the third plague pandemic. We do know that India and China were hit the hardest, but one of the things that really strikes me is the real story of this natural disaster is not just about the overall numbers, although certainly 12 to 15 million deaths are nothing to, to, to under, undermine here. But really, in this period that the third plague pandemic struck, it was really about rekindling a fear of plague, a link to the medieval Black Death, a disease with staggering case fatality. And it was about what scientists and public health officials did who probably had an unprecedented, by the early 20th century, rise of cultural authority, of making real decisions for populations and using the power of what scholars call the new public health and the height of European imperialism. What they actually did to people on the ground during the third plague pandemic and, and, and how this is really a story of the rise of public health authority in many ways gone wrong. While scientific understanding of epidemic disease had improved tenfold, its treatment and prevention was still wanting. Responses often expose the appalling way colonial forces abuse the humanity of indigenous populations. So in the period when the third plague pandemic originated, there was no real viable solution, at least to contemporary public health officials at the time. But two developments were really key from the outset, from the 1890s. So one was the rise of bacteriology and epidemiology as the key sciences of public health. And there were some initial kinds of findings that were promising. So one was the discovery that I mentioned in 1894 by Yersin and Kitasato of the causative organism, Yersinia pestis. The second was the finding by another Pasteurian doctor, Paul Louis Simond, of the rat flea connection in 1898, a research that he was working on in Karachi at the time. And the second was the hope and promise 
Although ultimately it was the failure of Yersin's 1897 anti-plague inoculation. There's this massive sort of mobilization that a, that a, a bacteriological laboratory solution was there. And Yersin was using a killed whole cell vaccine using animal models. And there's this incredible rollout that he did using the arm of the British Empire in India and, and imperial networks to roll this and test this uh, inoculation out. But it was shrouded in controversy at the time and the results were really unimpressive and sometimes deadly. So where public health officials turned rather quickly even by around 1900 was because bacteriology had failed in coming up with a preventive vaccine, public health authorities turned to epidemiology. They turned to surveillance and isolation and quarantine and to disinfection. And, and they did so in the first couple decades of the 20th century with what I think is unprecedented size and scope. And I actually got into researching the third plague pandemic several years ago when I stumbled upon a photograph at the Welcome Library. And it was stuffed into a, a Royal Army Medical Corps notebook from an RAMC officer who had been in South Africa during the South African War. But then I found this photograph, and this photograph I was, I, I was blown away by, and I've never been as blown away by a photograph in my entire career. And it was from 1898, and it was taken by J.H.C. Kelly, who was a supervisor for the Indo-European Telegraph Department. And this, this photograph, it is an image of the Kamari Quarantine Depot in Karachi. What it represents is the only archival photograph that I'm aware of during the third plague pandemic of the dipping of human beings in vats of carbolic acid. And this was a practice that actually in the first couple decades of the 20th century throughout the British Empire was fairly routine. The dipping, the spraying, the soaking of people, of, of, of belongings, of things, put it more broadly speaking, that public health authorities, that European public health authorities in particular, they did upon indigenous people. So we have really good examples of the kind of intrusive public health practices that, that European authorities put upon peoples in, in Southeast Asia. And my work has been looking at uh, these kind of similar practices in both India and in South Africa. And, and I'll just give you some quick examples. So when bubonic plague comes to Cape Town, British authorities rather quickly remove indigenous Africans from, from the Cape. And they remove them to these camps, their segregation camps. And what British authorities do, and this is right after on the heels of the discovery of the bacillus and the discovery of the rat flea connection, is they remove entire urban housing areas. They literally destruct, they, they disinfect, and, and they totally remake the urban landscape in Cape Town, setting the stage in, in Cape Town for urban segregation and for apartheid. And this is such an important story of, of environmental change, ecological change, and the remaking of a place that was due to the fear of a pandemic and the reality of a pandemic coming. Just like increased movement during the Crusades, warfare and trade ensured the movement of 20th century plague. 
warfare in East Asia created the kind of preconditions for the rise and the spread of the third plague pandemic arising from its port of departure in Hong Kong. And then certainly in the 20th century, two world wars would have uh, undoubtedly facilitated the spread from port to port and over land of the third plague pandemic. But what's interesting is the European deaths are actually pretty low. So it certainly from a global perspective, you know, two world wars would have impacted the spread of that disease. But there isn't a, a huge concentration of deaths in continental Europe itself. In Europe, another set of diseases were wreaking havoc. Unsurprisingly enough, perhaps, both the First and the Second World War had severe instances of venereal disease. And there was a lot of anxiety around the incapacitation of the troops because of gonorrhea and syphilis and things like that. That's Dr Tessa Dunlop, historian and author of The Century Girls. If you look at the statistics attached to the First World War, up to 5% of all the men serving in the British Army were admitted for hospital treatment of venereal disease. Why was that? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? You know, the khaki fever, women diving into the arms of men in uniform, that kind of living in the moment sensation. The upshot was quite often very dark. That, by the way, that 5% statistic, over 400,000 men, including uh, Dominion troops, being treated in hospital for venereal disease. In the Second World War, of course, we have better communications, we have more prophylactics, better access to condoms, a recognition that this is desperate. You know, a man can be put out of action if he's in the latter stages of venereal disease. So in the Second World War, women are also put in uniform. And there's a lot of public anxiety around what that's going to do to our young girls. It will make them promiscuous, is the automatic presumption. But there's a very interesting parliamentary committee that's sent to look into the conditions in the women's services, you know, how women are looked after and and all sorts of kind of aspects are delved into from accommodation to uniform from homesickness. And of course, there is a little discreet paragraph tucked away about venereal disease where they write this parliamentary committee. We have been given figures of venereal disease to show the instance of women as compared with men, the men's being approximately double that of the women. So there you are. In this case, men are being <laughs> blamed for having higher instances of venereal disease, probably because women tended to be more asymptomatic. Gonorrhea, for instance, often women didn't know they had it. Then this continues, this parliamentary committee. There are no reliable civilian figures available with which to compare the service statistics. But members of the committee on their visits have inquired as to the number of cases of venereal disease and been impressed by the low incidence reported in the women's services. Suffice to say, I've been talking to quite a lot of veterans who are in the ATS, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, and one remembers very clearly that everybody on all the command posts, she was in the searchlight brigade, had to be notified to listen to the radio. It's very important, national importance. So she notified men and women. They all had to be tuning in to the wireless, as it was then known, for this uh, all-important lecture. And she was totally mortified when it turned out to be one on the dangers of venereal disease. I've also talked to a couple of women who say they just didn't have sex, not because they were terrified of getting pregnant, that too, by the way, but also because of this sort of fear, existential fear almost, of venereal disease. In the end, venereal disease rates... In the American army, they were as low as 2% by the end of the war. And one of the reasons was the campaign about the dangers of venereal disease. The other one was about the availability of condoms, which hadn't been the case in the First World War. And of course, you can treat venereal disease better by the Second World War. 
There's evidence of materials with antibacterial properties, such as mould, being used to treat infections for thousands of years. Indeed, ancient Nubian mummies found in the late 20th century were found to have significant levels of the antibiotic tetracycline in their bodies, thought to have come from beer. The first modern antibiotic, however, was developed in 1910, primarily for use against syphilis. But it was a cumbersome drug to administer, and many side effects were thought to be linked to poor application. Then, in 1928, Scottish scientist Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. Despite its importance, Fleming found it difficult to get others within the scientific community excited about it, so its potential lay unrealised for several years. That was until 1940, when scientists at the University of Oxford purified penicillin further and worked with US pharmaceutical companies to roll it out on an industrial scale. By spring 1944, 2.3 million doses were ready in time for the invasion of Normandy. The effect on wartime survival rates was stark and immediate. Well, I mean, the best comparison, and I've done this quite a lot with military groups over the years, is to look at how a soldier, for example, will be treated on the Somme in 1916 and compare that to Normandy in 1944. The key thing is he's got a bigger chance of survival in the Second World War because of antibiotics, antibiotics that can be applied quite literally directly on the battlefield by stretcher bearers. So that in the First World War, the biggest killer was infection of wounds. I mean, there's a cemetery near Popperinger with nearly 10,000 men who died of their wounds. That's just one cemetery. In the Second World War, you could treat men and cope with that infection in a quicker and better way. And the evacuation route off the battlefield was identical in the way it was structured, but the advance in technology, particularly aircraft, meant that men could be flown out of the theatre of war very quickly to specialist hospitals, and their chance of their life being saved was much, much higher. So as a, as a soldier in Normandy in 1944, you could get wounded in the hedgerows in the morning, have your wound properly treated and dressed, antibiotics applied on the battlefield, and by nightfall you were in a specialist hospital in London having been flown out by Dakota. So it was the the lessons learned from the First World War were applied. The advance in technology and the advance in medicine in that period from the end of the First World War to the beginning of the Second meant that very often in, in the infantry, casualties were as high as the First World War, but more men survived because the wounds were treatable and your chance of surviving them was greater. The Second World War also had a deeper medical legacy. What's interesting about conscription for men and women in the Second World War is this is before the period of the NHS. You don't have automatic health service. And you see in both cases the eagerness with which the authorities want to educate these young men and women from all walks of life. And that included embarrassing subjects. And again, this parliamentary committee addresses that. They say, oh, as we've kind of got them, let's educate them. You know, let's let them know that we think that sex should be had in a stable, loving relationship and the dangers of venereal disease. So uh, we're going to see the great rollout of the state post-45 with Atlee's government. You're going to have the NHS in 48. But the seeds of that, the roots, if you like, are established in the war when you've got everyone, well, not everyone, some are, of course, conscripted into munitions factories, etc. But in the services, they're up every day at the same time. They're wearing the same uniform. They're behaving in the same way. And they're also being subjected to the same messaging on personal health and hygiene. 
In our next and final episode, we explore the history of the NHS, the global eradication of smallpox and the challenges faced by modern medicine. With thanks to today's guests, Paul Reed, Dr Jacob Steer-Williams and Dr Tessa Dunlop. This series was written, narrated and produced by myself, Rebecca Radil. It was edited and produced by Peter Curry and it was brought to you by Sick to Death. For Medicine Through Time GCSE students, revision notes and sources are available via our website, www.sicktodeath.org.